Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. Now, last week was actually, I felt, was a bit of a slow news week. I mean, we had the release of Bloodstained. That was kind of the, the, the game of the week last week. And along with it came a pretty nasty game-breaking bug that the developer has actually already fixed. So if you haven't played the game yet, you're looking to buy it, make sure you uh, update it before you actually start playing because there's a glitch that was found that actually prevents you from progressing further in the game. And unfortunately, if people had already experienced that glitch, their only solution was apparently to restart the whole game, which really sucks. But it looks like the developers actually have already put out a fix. Outside of that, the game has actually been getting pretty good reviews. I actually purchased it, but I haven't had any time to actually try it so i'm looking forward to to um giving that a test this week and updates from last week we just have one actually which is from bill trennan from nintendo and in an interview with polygon he kind of updated us on the status of the release date for luigi's mansion 3 as i spoke about in the as i spoke about last week luigi's mansion 3 did not get a date um during nintendo's presentation at e3 all they said was that it comes on 2019 so a bunch of people are curious as to why there was no exact date for it what bill trinner said was that nintendo wants next level games who is the actual developer of luigi's mansion 3 to put the care into it they want and i quote we're waiting on them to let us know and we'll solidify the release date now i don't think this means that the game will necessarily slip out of 2019. I think it's more like, you know, uh, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, just making sure that they're going to hit the release date that they're going to put out to the public. As I said last week, I think that Nintendo's just now trying to be a lot more careful about um, kind of dating items, especially after what happened with a bunch of projects, what happened with Metro Prime. Uh, another one was even something like Bayonetta, which we haven't really heard much about, even though they kind of dropped that trailer. And now with um, with what happened to Animal Crossing, I'm sure Nintendo just wants to be a lot more careful in the future with putting release dates on items uh, before they're 100% sure that they're able to, to deliver it. And I think Nintendo has probably reached a point where they realize that they can kind of do this, <laughs> you know, like... They can, I want to use the term get away with it, but uh, they can be a lot more conservative when it comes to not dating projects and feeling confident with, you know, dropping that Breath of the Wild 2 teaser, for example, and kind of feeling good enough with the messaging that they've been able to put out to the their their fans and their audience to trust that their fans will understand and i think nintendo kind of values uh, that relationship that they've been able to cultivate in the last few years in terms of how they speak um, directly to the consumer so uh i just i don't see this actually slipping i'm still hoping for an october release date but that's kind of the beauty of what Nintendo's going through right now, which is even if it slips, people will be disappointed. And trust me, I will be disappointed definitely as a, as a Luigi fan. But I think now they have the fans on their side in terms of they'll understand. Uh, but hopefully that's, uh, that's not something that, that uh, actually happens. So the first story of the week is uh, talking about unionization. So last week, Bernie Sanders, Democratic hopeful for the, the president of the United States, tweeted, the video game industry made $43 billion in revenue last year. The workers responsible for that profit deserve to collectively bargain as part of a union. I'm glad to see unions like IATSE and the broader game workers movement organizing such workers. Now, the IATSE is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees and Game Workers is, of course, a grassroots organization of game workers organizing unions to improve the industry. Now, this was actually something that uh, I feel is, is a pretty big and important uh, story that came out last week, just because unionization is something that we've been speaking a lot about, not just on this podcast in terms of crunch and things like that, but kind of in the broader spectrum of, of journalists in the game industry, I've been speaking a lot about unionization and the need for unionization, what 
problems unions could actually solve and how it would and could improve the industry as a whole. And I think it's great to see a politician kind of put a spotlight on something like this uh, because it is something that's really, really important. And I feel like our industry right now is at a, you know, crunch time has become, it has hit the tipping point in our industry where uh, I think a lot more fans are becoming aware of exactly what crunch time is. As I've said before on, on, on this podcast, I think crunch time was sold almost like a, a as a uh, as a fifth gear it was something that i think a lot of fans their understanding of it was you know a month before a game goes gold uh, artists and developers and, and and coders will spend a little bit extra time maybe six days maybe add an extra day per week working on a project whereas now we're realizing that no crunch sometimes constitutes to you know could be six months to a to a year of working, you know, over 70 hours a week, uh, which I think hopefully most people would agree that that's a pretty inhumane way to run any industry or, or, or create any single product out there. And it is kind of a problem that is not, doesn't just plague the game industry, but is something that uh, is becoming a focal point just on uh, labor generally but obviously us as gamers we're going to care more about this industry than any other and it's it's obviously the culture that 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 we love and we want to fight for um so it's great to see a politician kind of step forward and and you know really kind of plant their feet on this on this stance and where they stand for example and i think it's also just kind of a positive move for bernie sanders just looking for that that young vote and, um, you know, showing just why he's such a, a progressive when it comes to these types of things. Now, on the other hand, in an interview with GamesIndustry.biz, Take-Two Chairman and CEO Strauss Zelnick said, Look, unions tend to develop when labor relations are not typically non-existent. Right now, Take-Two has 500 open positions. There are 220,000 or so people employed in the U.S. video game business. They make about $100,000 on average, maybe more. It's hard to imagine what would motivate that crew to unionize. But we're a compliant company and will serve the law if our colleagues want to engage in collective bargaining, then we will. Now, the numbers that Zelnick brought up in terms of uh, developers making $100,000 on average, a Take-Two representative confirmed to GameIndustry.biz that it comes from an ESA report on the economic contributions of the U.S. video games industry. That report taking an average annual compensation for U.S. developers of $97,000, taking the base salary of 83,060 reporting in the 2014 survey and adding 16.8% to represent supplements you know things like uh employee contributions like retirement funds insurance government social insurance things like that and um you know it must really suck to work in a company and kind of hear something like this come out of your CEO not really kind of understanding why you'd want to unionize because Unionization is really not just about how much money is being made or the, the the distribution of funds. And obviously, you know, these types of things coming from a position as high as a CEO uh, is very hard to listen to and say, okay, cool, I understand right now. Uh, the first episode we ever did of this podcast, I believe it was the first episode we ever did, where we talked about uh, how much CEOs make in terms of bonuses. And, you know, when we talked about Blizzard, um, laying off all these people earlier in the year uh, we also had to talk about the bonuses that a lot of these ceos make and what's interesting about this take two ceo strauss zelnick is that his base salary is actually zero dollars is one of those few ceos and i think like mark zuckerberg is also also the same thing they got like they get paid like a dollar for example and uh it it's obviously just because they make so much money off of shares and bonuses that there's really not much of a need to take a salary. That that sounds like a good life to me, that you make so much money, there's no need for you to even uh, take a base salary. But obviously, Zelnick owns over 3 million shares of Take-Two. I think the guy is uh, very well off. 
So it just sucks to continue to see this disparity between the people at the top and the people who are actually putting in that, you know, blood, sweat, and tears day in and day out to uh, produce these games that we love. It's incredible to see that gap between the two of them. I think it's very interesting that, you know, unionization has been something that has been spoken about in the industry for a while now. It's just now continuing to pick up steam because of journalists reporting on this incredible amount of crunch that we're seeing in, in a lot of these um, different companies, whether it's the good, talking about a company like Nintendo and the way that they handle their work-life balance, or continuing to see like the bad, like what happened with EA and Anthem and NetherRealm and Mortal Kombat, and then the in-between where you see companies like CD Projekt Red, who's developing Cyberpunk 2077, talking about how uh, they are trying their best to, to regulate it and kind of making these promises that crunch does not play a factor into Cyberpunk 2077's development. And uh, it's interesting to see where this is going. I think definitely unionization is something that needs to happen for the industry. And I don't think it really has to... It really is about how much money a person is making. I mean, you can look at the film industry as a great example. Uh, they have their own union. And the unions are separated. You know, the writers have their own union. The actors have their own union. The employees, the gaffers, and you know, the uh, people who built sets, for example, all of them are are part of a union. It's just great to be a part of something like that because it's, as people say, it gives you a seat at the table in terms of negotiations. And you know, there are certain things that can be put in place to defend yourself from. You know, crazy things happening like layoffs just happening from one day to another. We just heard about uh, Amazon closing down a game studio and, and laying some people off. And they did that sort of quietly. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the news came out during E3. I feel like that was pretty strategic. So it's a, it kind of gets drowned out by all this other stuff and Keanu Reeves and those crazy things that we're focusing on. But it's definitely a natural next step. And it's good to see politicians like Bernie Sanders, like I said, step forward. Um, kind of, un I felt like it was unprompted. Sort of the tweet came out of nowhere, seemingly. It didn't really look like he was responding to something in particular. So it was great to see those stances being taken. Our next story is about NBA 2K19. So uh, a lot of people are complaining because eight, NBA 2K19 has unskippable ads. Now, Sports games are not something that I personally play, and NBA 2K19 is not a game that I've, uh, I've actually tried, for example. It's just not really my type of genre. But people are now reporting that um, there are ads inside the game that you cannot skip, which is super weird. Now, according to a lot of people, as I was doing research for the story, looking up, it, it kind of blew up on Reddit. There was a Reddit post made about how can a $60 game have unskippable ads? There are people who claim that this has been a part of 2K for a while now. Um, other players were responding saying that you can turn it off by disabling 2K TV in the settings. But as I was looking through it, it looks like other people are saying that that doesn't work. Now, one of the reasons why this is blowing up is because I believe it was last week and the sale is, I'm pretty sure it's over by now. The game went down to $299, which is sounds amazing, but it also sort of makes sense from a business standpoint. Uh, in order to sort of offload this game, you know, the, the NBA season is now over, and we all know that 2K20 is coming some at some time in September. So I saw this as a little bit of a last-ditch effort, kind of a, a obviously it was a temporary uh, sale, it wasn't permanent for 2K to get players into NBA 2K into that ecosystem for 2.99, and then at some point, you know, try to get people to purchase 2K20 when it comes out later this year. Now, what people are thinking or claiming is that all oh, this they they charge 2.99 to get you in for cheap, and now they're obviously making a lot of money off of ad revenue uh, for the company that companies are actually paying EA to run these ads. Or as I'm thinking, maybe at some point in August, you can I, I can definitely see them using these unskippable ads to advertise for 2K20 to try to get people to to spend $60 for that new game. 
this is something that's very weird because it's a story that I feel like is continually changing. I'm seeing people saying that it, it they are skippable. Other people are saying that this is something that's always been a part of the game. Regardless, this should not be a part of any game at all. There's no reason why anyone should pay $60 for a uh, what is sold to you as a complete experience and then go into it seeing ads that you can't skip. This is something that we've obviously seen in free-to-play, the free-to-play model, uh, more times than not on cell phones. You know, there are a lot of cell phone games that after you die or after like one level or even just two levels, you'll get a, a quick ad, a five-second to ten-second ad that you can, but even though sometimes, not even sometimes, usually you can skip after like five or ten seconds, but those games you can spend $60 on. And maybe EA can, oh, excuse me, not EA, 2K can look at it as, hey, it was a two ninety nine dollars game, you know, just live through these ads. But it's not like gamers were aware of that before they made the purchase. It's not like the game was sold to you as, hey, this is NBA 2K ad version or something like that, where it's advertised as, yeah, you're going to pay $2.99, but for that $2.99, you just have to sit through a few ads. Or if the game was completely free and they said this game is supported by ads. Uh, since that wasn't really sort of a part of the deal when the package was sold to you as a consumer, it's really a, a, a shitty, deceptive practice to to force ads down people's throats, especially for, for a video game. Now, the funny thing about this is I think this is something that we're probably going to be seeing a little bit more and more we've seen other companies experiment with it i think it was capcom experimented with it for street fighter where the loading screens had advertising on it uh but we are moving towards this future as 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 advertised by sony and microsoft where um loading screens they want them to be almost completely eliminated so it'll be interesting to see uh what tactics developers take in order to try to cram ads into video games but this is something i definitely see happening more and more in the future like video games have almost become this last bastion for advertising you really don't see them much in video games even like um kind of in-game advertising you really don't see it uh i remember back in the day playing crazy taxi and you know driving someone to a KFC, which I found kind of weird, but it's, it's just, it's not something that you really experience much in video games right now, where you think about a game like, like Rockstar and Grand Theft Auto, you think about, man, how much money would Grand Theft Auto actually make if there were real life Taco Bells that you were driving by, um, instead of these made up ads that they create, which I mean, I absolutely prefer. I would, I would hate to play an open world game and kind of see real world ads i feel like video games are meant to be an escape and i kind of hope that this isn't the the path that we're taking as an industry but what's weird about especially something like nba is that this game is already pretty heavy on on influence in terms of ad revenue and dollars you know they're i think gatorade is like a sponsor and they have um brands in terms of clothing and things like that so it's already in there so for 2K to even test an unskippable ad, I think it's pretty bad. Something like this should definitely only exist as a free-to-play game, and it should definitely be something that a consumer is aware of before they even um, buy the game. Adding on top of all of that, I think the funniest part of all of this that um, I feel like hasn't really been highlighted uh, and, you know, when I was looking through different websites talking about this is the actual advertisement itself. The advertisement that, ha that is being recently showed is an advertisement for a TV show called Snowfall, which I think airs on FX. But the TV show is about crack cocaine in Los Angeles and kind of uh, the start of the crack cocaine epidemic. But the game is E for everyone. So I really don't understand how 2K is kind of getting away with that and I'm surprised that there hasn't been more of a backlash or who knows if there have been parents kind of calling into NBA2K saying hey I bought this for my son for 2.99 and as I walk 
by the TV, there's a an advertisement about crack cocaine or, or whatever. So I'm surprised that they would even um, have those types of ads for their games just because video games have such a wide demographic, especially for something that's E for everyone, something that's on the Nintendo Switch and just recently sold for $2.99. I think it's very interesting that they they chose that that type of advertising, but there's really no place for it. It's shitty, you know. Um, 2K should feel really bad about this, and uh, fans need to make them feel bad about it. So definitely, this is one of those Twitter uh, wars that I 100% agree with, that people need to make them realize how wrong this is. Now, there was a uh, update about the next-gen uh, Xbox from Xbox head Phil Spencer, according to an interview with Business Insider, he conf- he seemingly confirmed that Microsoft is only shipping one console next year. Now, there were rumors previously that stated that there were two different consoles in development: a premium model, codenamed Anaconda, and a budget model, codenamed Lockhart. Now, what we're led to believe is that Lockhart actually was the Xbox One S all additional, uh, all digital edition, or the SAD edition. Um, that was released earlier this year, and Microsoft's sole focus is on uh, Project Scarlet, which is launching next holiday. And I personally do believe that this rumor was sort of true in terms of Microsoft considering launching with two different models. I think the one thing that people need to understand is Throughout the development process of absolutely any product ever in history, they go through multiple, multiple iterations and through a lot of testing and and feedback that is collected, a lot of things are canceled that we never heard of or never even knew about. And I could absolutely see Microsoft considering um, launching with a more budget friendly model kind of the same way that we are used to for example cell phones launching now you know there's the iphone 10 and then there was the other one called the iphone i think it's the xr or something like that which was kind of a more budget friendly cheaper version we, we saw google do it recently with the pixel where now there's a pixel that's like i think 400 bucks compared to 700 800 um that removes a few features but kind of you're still, it's still a pixel, except there are moves, a few features, uh, like I think screen size or whatever, the, the material may be a little bit cheaper. So I could definitely see Microsoft seeing the appeal of releasing a premium model for gamers like myself, for example, which are really, really into kind of day one, very, very tech savvy, and then a budget model for for people who obviously don't want to spend that much money, but Microsoft still kind of wants to get them into that that ecosystem uh, one way or another. But I think I think the I think Microsoft learned their lesson when it came to the Xbox One. One of the most confusing aspects about the Xbox One was all the different models that they introduced in the middle of the cycle. So you had the Xbox One at launch. Then you had the Xbox One S, then you had the Xbox One X, then you had the Xbox One S All Digital Edition, all of these things coming into the the market. And the problem was that when these items were introduced, um, they were sold as so many different bundles. Like you can go to Microsoft's own website and there were like 10 different Xbox One S bundles, one with Division 2 inside, another one with, you know, Destiny inside or whatever. And then when the Xbox One X came out, I feel like it just added even more confusion to the market. Now for people like me or even the people that that are listening to this podcast, for us, we can tell the difference. We understand that the Xbox One X is kind of a Cadillac. That's the high-end version um, of the Xbox One. That's if you want HDR, the best graphics, 4K gaming, all that jazz. But for the average consumer... For the mom that's just buying an Xbox for her 12-year-old son that 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 is asking for for his or her birthday, um, it's it's not that easy to walk in and understand the difference between these. And I think that's 
what Microsoft is really trying to avoid when it comes to the future of the next Xbox is they don't want that to happen again. They don't want people to be confused when, when at retail, at the point of sale. So I could see this being something that was considered and something that was subsequently scrapped, especially after the confusion that they introduced with the Xbox One. Nintendo learned their own lesson when they introduced the Wii U. I mean, if you remember, it felt like even two years after the Wii U was released, people still thought that the Wii U was a controller that attached to the original Wii. Um, you know, it's important for companies to learn their lessons, and it's obvious that Microsoft is kind of uh, taking that lesson to heart and applying it to their next launch. Um, so I'm not really surprised. I still personally think that um, there kind of is still a budget solution to entering the Xbox uh, ecosystem, but I feel like what Microsoft would develop is something closer to a Chromecast, and they would bundle that in with a controller and maybe... Uh, controller clip so you can clip your phone onto your controller so you have this all-in-one streaming kit so people can you know stream future xbox titles straight to their tv and for that you do need something that's similar to a chromecast so i kind of see that being their solution to um a quote-unquote budget model for the next system but obviously based all around uh streaming the other update that came from Xbox was from 343 Industries that um, gave a quick Halo Infinite update. They confirmed once again the release date was holiday 2020. Uh, it follows, or Halo Infinite, the story follows Master Chief sometime after Halo 5 Guardians conclusion. They confirmed they will support LAN. They confirmed that split screen is up and running, which was something that I believe was removed from the last Halo and a lot of people were um, asking for and looking looking forward to. They also confirmed that there were there, there will be betas coming first to Xbox One. These are called opt-in flights that will start small and slowly expand out until release. And that PC is also something that they're looking for in terms of these flights or beta testing. And they're treating PC as a, quote, first-class citizen, which I'm sure a lot of people were worried about. Um, obviously, Halo has traditionally been this uh, game that's always been kind of console first, PC second. But obviously, with this push that Microsoft is, is making with trying to um, separate software from hardware, and they, they really want um, PC there day and date, um, for it to be a similar or better experience based upon what your preference is. Uh, it's good to, to hear them kind of solidify and reiterate that PC is a first-class citizen. It's not, a, not an afterthought. They confirmed that there will be uh, player customization um, similar to Halo Reach. If you like that level of customization, you'll be pleased with what's coming in Halo Infinite. And they also confirmed that if you hit SR-152 in Halo 5 Guardians, which I believe is the highest online rank, you receive a token of appreciation in Halo Infinite. So it's pretty cool to see these updates. I'm sure I know a lot of people are excited about split screen being back up and running. Split screen is something that right now in the game industry, especially as um, you know, um, technology advances, it becomes harder and harder to duplicate those effects um, twice on a screen. It, it's something that sounds easy, but is actually really hard to execute. And it is something that most developers during the development of the game, it kind of has to be one of the first bullet points in terms of features when a game is in development. It has to be implemented really, really early on for it to kind of work. So it's obvious that it's something that 343 was, was thinking about very, very early in the development. And it's obvious it was a result uh, from feedback because if split split screen and and things like LAN were something that fans were not clamoring for and asking about you definitely wouldn't have seen it uh in this game um after its absence in the last one so it's really good to see that they're they're listening and they're implementing this into the new game oh, now the next story <laughs> is one that uh sometimes in in the culture of video games, I'm 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 very very proud of of these the group of men and women that um, either produce video games or consume video games or talk about video games or just overall support 
um, this medium that we all love. And then sometimes stories like this one come out and you just have to shake your head, put your head in your hands and kind of say, is this really what we're, we're talking about? So one of the big news pieces from last week had to do with Final Fantasy VII Remake. And it's kind of weird that this story happened simply because Final Fantasy VII Remake had an amazing E3. It was one of the most talked about games. That and I believe Cyberpunk 2077 were the two most talked about games. I'm sure Square Enix, looking back at that E3, they saw it as, as a massive success. You know, every company that you can think of post E3, they have those meetings where they bring up analytics and talk about, um, you know, how um, their YouTube channels did, what their social media think, what were their reactions to the reveal of Final Fantasy VII Remake. And I'm sure all of that was positive. So it must have been pretty bad to see what this story that came out last week about uh, Tifa or Tifa, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, Final Fantasy VII, and her breast size being kind of the highlight of last week. So just to recap, two weeks ago, we were talking about how amazing Final Fantasy VII Remake is and what an amazing job Square Enix did. And then uh, not even more than a week later, the dominating story for Final Fantasy VII was this translation. So it was kind of a mistranslation from a Famitsu article. You know, Famitsu kind of has a weekly article that releases. A lot of people um, tend to translate it. So us here in the States can understand what it is that's being talked about. Um, it seemed to have been a mistranslation on um, a conversation about Tifa's redesign and her breast size being shrunk or quote, quote unquote, restricted. And um, it kind of brought up a lot of negativity, kind of this subset group of gamers that think that the restriction of the way that females are portrayed now in video games compared to the way that they were portrayed um, in the PlayStation 1 days, for example, is as a result of uh, quote-unquote SJWs or social justice warriors and you know it's it's pretty sad to to see that thought process happen even if it's a small group now mind you this is a small subset uh, of, of gamers this is not the majority of gamers that feel this way um, but it was just ridiculous to see uh, the reaction to, to an article like this I even saw an article on GameSpot by, I believe her name is Callie Pillage or Kaylee Pillage, uh, where she discussed how bra sizes worked. I guess she felt compelled to um, put out this article to educate uh, gamers, and obviously this was mostly men, uh, about how bra sizes actually worked, because there was this, uh, part of this backlash was that Tiffa's bra size went from a double D to a B or, or something like that. Um, I actually laughed. I, I found this really funny. It was enjoyable to me because I find these types of reactions whenever they come out. Once again, they are small. This is a small kind of community of men that feel that... Um, there is this kind of restriction of the way that that females are portrayed in terms of how sexualized or over you know under sexualized they are now in video games and it's funny because i remember this sort of popping up during um mortal kombat 11 i think it was that i remember people tweeting out about how covered up uh these female characters were compared to the way that they were portrayed um, in Mortal Kombat 2, for example. And it was one of those things where I responded to it in terms of, this is really what, is this really the hill to die on? This is really what you're worried about, that you look at video games and all you're worried about is, why is it this, is, this, this um, character's breasts are much smaller, or why is it that her... Um, ass is smaller than, than than it was back in the day this is obviously a result of this movement uh, this quote-unquote social justice warrior movement where um, we believe that women shouldn't be sexualized or treated as objects in video games and 
I kind of look at it as, you know, everything that's done in the world is, is, is an artistic, it's not only just an artistic decision, but it's also a reflection of, of real life that, I mean, video games kind of take, um, their inspiration from, from real life also. That's why, you know, I find it funny when, um, people complain about how, (laughs) you know, um, women in video games uh, are too covered up compared to the way that they used to. When you, when you think of a character like Ivy, for example, from Soul Calibur, which has had an obviously ridiculous chest size, but then you think about it in the context of the universe where we're talking about characters that fight with swords and, and, and then you look at characters, male characters who are completely armored up, and then here comes uh, Ivy with just a bra. Or as I spoke about last week, where you look at uh, a game like Avengers, for example, where a super soldier like Captain America is wearing riot gear, standing next to Black Widow, who's wearing a half-zip jacket, for example. And you do have to look at those types of things in terms of like, yeah, how can I look at an example like that and not think that this character is is being objectified or sexualized? Um, when you look at something like that, you kind of do look at it in terms of, well, there's a reason why her jacket is half zipped and it's not because it's it's hot outside, for example. It just doesn't make sense in the context of you're entering into a combat situation. You probably don't want to enter it uh, with a spaghetti top on and, and, and cut off jean shorts, for example. Um, I think the funniest thing that came out of this was, you know, just going through Twitter and seeing responses from, from, from some of these guys. Uh, and I quote, Tifa stood out from other girls. Thanks to her boobs. There was no reason to add some esports bra on top of it. <laughs> Another quote for one, did sports bras as a concept even exist in FF7's world prior to this remake? Never saw it mentioned. So there was this backlash about the fact that Tifa is now wearing a sports bra, which once again makes sense in the context of what uh, she is doing. You know, um, there was talk that obviously they wanted her appearance to come off as a lot more active, you know, uh, playing off of her abs just to really, really portray this character as the type of person that she is, which is athletic, for example. Uh, Here's another quote. Here's the thing about Tifa and her big bust. It's an iconic part of that, and this is, as it was written, Charter's design, and reducing the size of her bust is also taking away part of that Charter's iconography. Obviously, I'm guessing that this person meant to say character, but since the size of a woman's chest is apparently part of her iconography, I don't think this person even knows how to spell character. This is... I mean, the the response to this is just, like I said, it's one of those things where the majority of, I think I speak for the majority of, of, of people that, that love this industry. These are those types of conversations that you just wish to, to lead off the internet, sweep under a rug, because you don't want it to be representative of the entire industry. And sometimes we kind of get that when it comes to, to, to Twitter. Twitter on, on, on a, 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 most sort of social media platforms, but especially Twitter, hate trends higher than love, right? That's why when something happens, you know, the first meme that's created is about a negative situation. It's it's laughing at the negative. It's it's throwing even more hate on uh, a person's terrible situation. Why? Because that's what gets likes. That's what gets retweets. You know, positivity, thumbs up moments don't really get that type of response. And I, I... I'm like most people where it's like, hey, if, if if you're here because you saw this game and you think it looks amazing, please don't think that these people represent us as a whole as an industry um, because they definitely uh, do not. Uh, last quote is, I was disappointed to see a breast reduction. I knew it was going to happen. And that's what worried me a long time. You can have realism in her fighting style and still give her big breast. It's been an appealing attribute to her since 1997. <laughs> Even though it looked unrealistic, I did not mean for them to be too big, just big enough. They are still time to consider it, please. So just a reminder that um, the comparison that's being made with Tiffa now is being uh, the compa- is obviously being compared to when she was first introduced in Final Fantasy VII, which released in 1997, which if you look at a photo, is obviously this blocky... Uh, portrayal of a character or it even reminds me of like you know if you look at Tomb Raider from PlayStation where her chest kind of looked like pyramids that came 
uh, to a point, and that was another character that there was some backlash when Tomb Raider was was reintroduced by Crystal Dynamics. You kind of had this similar movement of these uh, men that felt that they were censoring the character because her bus size was a lot smaller than it was in, in uh, the PlayStation 1 days. Oh, man, this is a story that to me was uh, sad as equal as it was entertaining. And for a couple of reasons. Number one, it shows just how important it is to make sure that you get translations correct. Because this all really started because something was mistranslated. Uh, so it shows how important it is and, and how you have to be extremely careful when you're when you're translating something from one language to another. Because obviously context plays into a role. Uh, excuse me, context plays a role and this, it, it kind of really did begin um, from that because that was not really the original intention. It kind of blew up as a story of Square Enix's ethics department told the developers that they had to restrict uh, Tifa's uh, breast size. So that's kind of where this started. But the fact that from that kind of drop in, of sand, we got this entire beach out of it and it sort of became a huge story for the week but as i said it's it's as entertaining to me i think it's entertaining just to see um once again the hills that these men die on just just the most ridiculous things to um to even speak about or listen to but it was just as you know sad as it was entertaining uh to me to see all these takes when it came to this <sighs> i don't know it's kind of crazy. Uh, now, before we get to our story of the week, I want to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Audible. Audible from Amazon allows you to listen to books anytime and anywhere. For example, in your car, on your way to work, you can listen to your favorite book or as a clever way to drown out music when you're on the subway and someone yells, Showtime! <laughs> Click the link provided in the episode's description to try Audible completely free for 30 days. You also get two free audiobooks with that trial. Great thing is, if you do not keep the trial after 30 days, you can still keep the audiobooks for future listening. Please give it a try. It's completely free. You can cancel at any time. And clicking the link supports Camp Koji so we can keep doing what we're doing. Now, our big story of the week came from EA and um, loot boxes, or as EA likes to call them, surprise mechanics. Now, appearing before a House of Commons committee in the UK's parliament, Vice President of Legal and Government Affairs, Kerry Hopkins, had an interesting answer when asked about loot boxes. Now, I'm kind of I kind of transcribed the video on here just because I think it's important to take everything that she said as a whole and kind of not just take that one term uh, out of context. Now, the question that she was asked was, do you consider loot boxes to be an ethical feature of your games? Kerry uh, Hopkins uh, reply was, well, first we don't call them loot boxes. What well, we look at surprise mechanics. So according to EA, they call them surprise mechanics. And she continues to say, but I think it's important to look at this. So if you go to a store that sells a lot of toys and you do a search for surprise toys, what you'll find is that this is something people enjoy. They enjoy surprises. And so it's something that's been a part of toys for years, whether it's Kinder Eggs or Hatchimals or LOL Surprise. We do think the way that we have implemented these kinds of mechanics, and FIFA, of course, is our big one. FIFA Ultimate Team and our packs is actually quite ethical and quite fun, enjoyable to people. We agree with the UK Gambling Commission, the Australian Gambling Commission, and many other gambling commissions that they aren't gambling. And we also disagree that there's evidence that it leads to gambling. Instead, we think it's like many other products that, implete, that people enjoy in a very healthy way and like the element of surprise. Carrie then solidifies um, her stance on the ethic of loot boxes or quote-unquote surprise mechanics by saying, I think the way we've implemented our FIFA Ultimate Packs is ethical. Now, <laughs> let's break this all down. Um... A few things to take away from this. Number one is I am 100% not surprised that EA called them surprise mechanics. I'm going to tell you right now, if any company was ever called up um, uh, to uh, a committee like this and they were asked to um, testify fending um, their use of loot boxes in video games, 
every company on the face of this earth would not call them loot boxes either. They would probably call them surprise mechanics also, right? And it's it's just part of kind of that legal jujitsu that a lot of these companies do in order to avoid regulation of their industry. We've seen it before when it came to the regulation of cigarettes or even anything else that can potentially be harmful to the greater good, like, you know, lobbyists when it came to to, to sugar, for example, you know, the, the whole sugar fight that uh, a calorie is a calorie and sugar is not the problem. Lack of exercise is the problem, for example. It's, it's sort of like a, a, a similar vein in terms of how these companies defend these features because at the end of the day, they're defending their bottom line. And most people will not argue that you will probably defend um, your source of income to the death, no matter what. And that's what a lot of these companies are doing when when they come up with these terms, such as surprise mechanics. So it, it's easy to point at EA and say like, wow, that's a very EA thing to say. But I don't think EA will be the only company that would not use the term loot boxes and would go with the quote-unquote surprise mechanic defense. Now, this is the most obvious defense for companies when it comes to loot boxes. This is the defense that they're going to use going forward um, whenever these conversations pop up. And obviously, it's becoming a lot more frequent now as, as lawmakers are sort of beginning to come together to, um, to try to regulate our industry when it comes to loot boxes. They're going to continue to use this defense of toys because this is something that has been used um, for years. They're going to talk about trading cards, for example. The fact that when you go to a store and you buy a trading cards, you don't exactly know what you're going to get. You don't know what's in there. So obviously, since trading cards are still sold at retail nowadays, all of these um, popular toys, the most recent popular toys, such as Hatchimals and LOL Surprise, are similar. You're purchasing something and not knowing exactly what's in there. And that's the hill that they're going to um, die on. That's the defense that they're going to make uh, is that these have existed in toys, obviously marketed towards children for a long time. They still exist in stores. So for that reason, it's almost like, well, why, why are we being singled out? Why are we being um, uh, regulated? Now, I want to be plain and... Uh, simple in terms of where I stand when it comes to this. The way I stand is that loot boxes are absolutely gambling. There's no doubt about it. Loot boxes or quote-unquote surprise mechanics are a form of gambling. And I think uh, the same can apply to these toys actually also. I think they also do fall under a form of gambling. Now, this is the Legal definition for gambling in the United States. Okay, so this is the legal definition. A person engages in gambling if he stakes or risks something of value upon the outcome of a contest of chance or a future contingent event not under his control or influence upon an agreement or understanding that he or someone else will receive something of value in the event of a certain outcome. Now, if you break that down, a person engages in gambling if he stakes or risks something of value. So what you're staking when you're buying a loot box is obviously your money. It's your real world money, right? Upon the outcome of a contest of chance or a future contingent event not under his control or influence. Now, obviously, when you're opening a loot box, you have absolutely no control what comes out the other end. All you're doing is hoping that you're going to get the top prize. Um, upon an agreement, understanding that he or someone else will receive something of value in the event of a certain outcome. Now, that's obviously... Um, another kind of big argument, something of value. Now, value is obviously placed upon by the person. Value is not really something that's determined by a jury of your, your peers, for example. I can value um, this Hanzo pop figure that I have on my desk way more than someone who has no idea who Hanzo is or Overwatch is, for example. Um, so the value is very, very different for for, for different people when it comes to something like this, especially um, when it comes to a digital item. The problem that's happening with uh, loot boxes right now is that this is something that we've spoken about in the industry before. A lot of people knew that this was coming. I knew that this was going to happen at some point because if you don't regulate yourself, at some point the government is going to step in 
because they believe that they have to defend the greater good or defend the kids, for example, or or um, or what have you. If companies don't take those proper steps, and this regulation is going to happen, um, sort of something similar happened to Apple, for example, where before when you used to get an app that you didn't pay for but had in-app purchases, it was it was called free. There was a button that said free, and then you clicked on it. But obviously, it's not technically free because within the app, you're you, there are at, there are purchases to make to eat to sometimes even unlock the full experience. So now instead of free, it says get. And now in order to actually spend money on the Apple Store, you need um, password approval. For example, there are more parental controls. They're regulating their own market, and it's something that we as an industry really has have not been doing until now. We're kind of forced to do it. Um, in uh, where is it? Belgium and the Netherlands have banned loot boxes as they were found to be a form of gambling. South Korea, China, and D- Japan have started regulating loot boxes on their own also. I believe it was South Korea that was, that was one of the first countries that required companies to um, publicly disclose the odds of getting a particular item. So I believe like, I think in Overwatch, in order to get a legendary item, I believe you have a, a 13% chance or it was one in every 13 um boxes guarantees you a legendary item so that's one of those things that i feel like is kind of bottom line that i see companies are going to start doing starting now because of all this heat that's coming i can see the esa sort of publicizing these steps that we're going to take to almost make it sound like we're going to regulate the industry so that the government doesn't step in and feel like they have to do it for us it was i think last year that the esa said that now on esrb information they're going to put on boxes that, you know, um, microtransactions exist in this game if you buy it. But then that also applies to DLC. So it's obviously something that's sort of confusing. Now, when it comes to, to loot boxes, once again, uh, I believe it's gambling. And the reason why I believe it's gambling is the, the fence that a lot of these companies are going to take is that there is a choice, that consumers are not forced to... Uh, purchase loot boxes. Now, the one thing that they're not going to obviously really talk about publicly is the actual creation of loot boxes and the fact that loot boxes are created to um, work in a similar fashion as slot machines work. Loot boxes are created and engineered to make you addicted. It's, It's just, it's, that's something that's absolutely plain and simple they are created in that fashion. A lot of these companies hire, specifically hire psychologists to come in and create what are called, I believe they're called dopamine targets, which are to help developers and artists um, craft that experience of opening a loot box to get you uh, instantly addicted to it. So one thing that um, was brought up is... um, uh, actually, before we move on to that, let me talk about uh, those dopamine targets and um, how loot boxes are engineered to be like slot machines. So slot machines use something that is called a reinforcement loop, and loot boxes do the same. So basically what happens is that your brain links the sounds and the flashing lights to a, a reward, uh, which is a payout, or obviously in loot boxes, it's a, a weapon or a skin. In that instant moment that you're playing a slot machine... Um, and you kind of pull that lever and, you know, the, the, the slot starts spinning and there's a lot of, you know, noise and sound, your brain kind of links that, um, to obviously getting a payout or a prize at that moment, your brain releases dopamine, which reinforces that link. And it kind of creates that loop. It's the same thing as when you eat, um, sugar, you have a cookie, you kind of have that instant feeling of feeling good. That's your body releasing that dopamine. Now, it's for me. It's relatively easy to put a slot machine right next to a loot box and obviously and, and um, quickly see the comparison between the two. There's no loot box ever that you see in the video game where you just simply click a button once, and it's like a cardboard box that just opens up, and then it says you got a shirt. Right? There's this build up. You know, you you kind of see the box shaking. There's a bunch of these lights kind of like bursting through. Then you know, the box splits open or the, the package 
breaks open, the items fly up into the air, they spin, they land, there's a bunch of sound and music playing, and um, they, they implement what's called a near-miss mechanic. And what that is, is it a near-miss mechanic makes us think like we're very close to winning big. It's the same thing as when you're in, um, uh, in a casino, when you near-miss, uh, meaning that you know, when you're in a slot machine and you get two cherries, but the third one is a gold bar, you kind of feel like, man, I came close, you know, maybe one more, one more try, I can get that third cherry. Same thing happens with, with, with loot boxes, for example. Um, it's like I said, it's once again, it's regulated to make it addictive. Now, obviously when it comes to consumer products like Hatchimals, they're not going to build in lights and sounds for something that is disposable. It just it just doesn't make sense. Now, if trust me, if manufacturers can find a cost-effective way to put lights and sounds into a package that's just going to be thrown away after opening it, 100% they would absolutely do the same because those lights and sounds um, trigger those dopamine levels in your brain to get you addicted to it. But what they what these toy manufacturers do is they find other ways of doing that. So, for example, that's why Hatchimals is so um, is so popular is because of the reinforcement loop that they created, where you have an egg, and I think if I'm not mistaken, you have to like rub the egg, so it goes from the heart goes from purple to pink, and then when it's pink, it's, it indicates to you that the egg is ready to hatch, and then from there. You that experience of actually cracking it and the sounds of the cracking of the eggs, all of that is tested. It, it, it like it's not, it's not a mistake. Like it's not done by mistake. It's not. It's something that these companies spent a lot of money and a lot of time perfecting in order to get kind of the proper response. It's similar to like what. Uh, manufacturers have done with soda. There's a there's a there's a limit to how much sugar you can put in soda before it becomes undrinkable. Before someone drinks it and says, "Oh wait, this is nasty." So someone will think Coca Cola experimented. I'm sure at some point there was Coca Cola. A can of Coke had like a hundred grams of sugar, and they kind of did taste tests until they finally went down to what's Coke now? Thirty nine grams of sugar or something like that in a can of Coke. Once they hit that sweet spot where testers drank and said, wow, this tastes good, but they knew that if they went even a gram higher, um, it would become disgusting, and obviously the consumer wouldn't um, buy Pepsi or Coke anymore. This is the same thing when it comes to loot boxes. All this stuff is created and tested um, in order to get the response that they want, and the response that they want is for you to keep spending money and keep going. Now... Whether or not this is addictive, 100% can become addictive. There was a story that came out, um, I think it was last year. Over the course of two years, one man from the UK spent $10,000 on FIFA 17 and 18. Um, there was a recent story, I believe it was just this year. person posted on Reddit, they decided to email the devs of Path of Exile, asking them to disable her ability to buy mystery boxes because she could no longer control her impulses. Gambling addiction is is similar to any addiction, meaning that if you've never been addicted to that item, you don't understand how addictive it can be. It's the same thing as people who've never smoked cigarettes. It's usually easy for you to look at a cigarette smoker and say, "Wow, what an idiot! You're spending twelve, you know, up to fifteen dollars a day um, consuming something that is obviously scientifically proven to kill you. Like, big deal. Just stop smoking." Unfortunately, it's not that easy because um, cigarettes have an active ingredient that um, creates that addiction, which is nicotine. Now, the issue is that when it comes to uh, things like loot boxes, it's harder to make that link to addiction because you don't have uh, an ingredient such as nicotine, which is scientifically proven to make you addictive. There, there's always going to be that reasonable doubt whether something digital can be addictive. And the way that I look at it is digital consumption can be even more addictive than actual gambling simply because when you're talking about uh, gambling in the real world, one thing that stops you is obviously um, the transfer of funds. You know, if you're holding money in your hand, you can feel that paper and you're handing over uh, 20 bucks to change the chips, for example, um, you're going to 
there's there's more opportunities for your brain to think about what you're doing and stop you. Compare that to a digital product product where is as simple as clicking one button. You actually don't physically see money being exchanged. It's a lot easier to get addicted to it and continue spending that money. That's why a lot of people, when you talk about people addicted to credit cards, the first thing they say is cut up your credit cards and use cash because that act of using paper is going to um, make your brain kind of think twice about that, that transfer of funds. Like I said, this was a, a, a story that it's it's funny, right? Sometimes it's fun to poke fun at EA and obviously their use of loot, like uh, surprise mechanics. But this there's a, an, an absolute bigger story uh, to be talked about here. And this, this is not the end of this conversation. Um, according to tech analyst Juniper Research, video gamers will be spending almost $50 billion a year worldwide on loot box features by 2022. This is a feature in video games that companies do not want to go away. They just don't want it to go away. As video game development gets more and more expensive, um, this is a way for, for companies to gain revenue that they do not, under any circumstances, want uh, regulators. So they're going to continue to fight um, that this is not gambling. They're going to continue to fight that this is not addictive, even though, like I said, on a human level, this is addictive. It's absolutely addictive, 100%. There is no doubt about it. Like I said, these things are created. All devices that you use, you might not even think about it, but there are things done to create that addiction, and they play on sound. They play on sight. You know, there's a reason why when you watch a Coca-Cola commercial, they amplify the sound of the bubbles, for example. It's supposed to and and they they create that connection to like happiness and people smiling so when you hear that that fizz of that soda your brain releases dopamine and and you remember like happiness oh this this makes me happy the sound of this makes me happy and the same can be said for opening a trunk in division 2 or opening a, a box in 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 Overwatch those lights and sounds are supposed to make you feel happy like they are created that way same thing with your cell phone when you think of you know Snapchat and like Snapchat streaks like all of that is being done to make you use the app every day you know that's why they have those rewards to keep you kind of coming back even though it's not like a real life monetary reward for example it's still a form of of addiction now, in December 2017, New Zealand determined that loot boxes were not a form of gambling because they said while the payment of money for a loot box, the contents of which are determined by chance may appear to be gambling, they do not meet the legal definition of gambling, which is because uh, you do not purchase loot boxes seeking to win money or something that can be converted into money. So as I said there's a lot of legal jargon in terms of what constitutes gambling and what, what does not. And... Um, like I said, this is a story that starts off with a joke. It begins with a joke about EA um, using this term surprise mechanics. But And I think, like I said, EA has kind of become the, um, the target when it comes to loot boxes because of what happened to Star Wars Battlefront 2. Um, a lot of people feel like they were the kind of the spark. That whole fiasco with Star Wars Battlefront 2 was this perfect storm to create this catalyst for what we're seeing now with the re re regulation. Kind of simply because Star Wars is connected to Disney and Disney is a family company and marketed towards children. So that kind of was the beginning, but it's really not the end when it comes to um, to loot boxes. If you're, you know, if you're one of those people uh, like me that don't believe in loot boxes, it's simple. You kind of just have to not do it. You know, don't buy it. And trust me, when you hear companies like, you know, Square Enix and Crystal Dynamics that want to go on stage and say, there will be no loot boxes and get that chair and that applause, they're not doing that because they're worried about you getting addicted or they're not doing that um, because they're, they're worried about how much money you're spending. They're doing that because according to market analysis, that's the cool thing right now. Like, oh man, it looks like a more and more people are not buying loot boxes it looks like the 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 tides have turned that's the reason why they're doing it because they feel that they can get more people to buy their game if they say there won't be loot boxes rather than 
being sly about it and putting loot boxes to the game, either with either uh, before confirming they're in there or just trying to just put them into the final game. So don't ever think companies are on your side. That's kind of the uh, the end result. Is companies just want your wallet? They really don't care about what uh, what happens to you. Uh, now this week's hot releases, June twenty fifth, we have Bloodstained: Ritual of the Night finally coming to Nintendo Switch. Judgment uh, for PlayStation 4, the OG classic Samurai Showdown for PS4 and Xbox One, and then Devil May Cry for Switch, which is pretty disappointing because Devil May Cry apparently for Switch is $19.99, which is just bad. That's awful. I think you can get the entire collection, the DMC collection, which I think brings one, two, and three for 20 bucks on like Xbox or PlayStation. So for them to release this OG game uh, for, for Switch for 20 bucks, just, just that's terrible. June 27th, we have The Sinking City. That's for PS4, Xbox One, and PC. And then June 28th, we finally get Super Mario Maker 2 for Nintendo Switch. As I said, this week, I'm probably going to um, try to give Bloodstained a, a, a try. Like I said, I, I purchased it. I haven't actually been able to play it. But um, please let me know um, under the, the tweet or on... Uh, um sorry on twitter or on instagram um how do you feel about ea's response to loot boxes calling them surprise mechanics do you feel like it actually is gambling uh let me know in the comments on the the instagram post on the twitter post and uh please make sure you follow us on twitter and instagram at camp koji for future updates thank you so much for joining me once again i'm joel and i will see you next week <laughs>